call this podcast the most useful podcast ever, so I'm going to go ahead and answer any questions you might be considering Googling. The Super Bowl is on CBS and starts at 6.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. The Carolina Panthers are going to trounce the Broncos, and the halftime performer is inexplicably Coldplay. On today's episode, Hill Country Barbecue Market pitmaster Ashley Folk stops by to teach us some nacho hacks. Then, Curious Idiot Kevin Dupsick has a few questions about optimal television placement. Senior home editor Roy Berenson tells us about his favorite tool, and we test some Super Bowl-worthy nitrogen beer. I'm Jacqueline Detweiler. This is the most useful podcast ever, and I guess the Broncos might win. We'll see. It's Super Bowl weekend, and I know a lot of us are excited about what we're going to be eating and drinking and watching, but I think our curious idiot who is here, hi, Kevin. Hello. Is is wondering what he should do with his television. What kind of television do you have, curious idiot? Yeah, so I have an LG, it's actually a flat screen, and I bet you guys thought I had one of the big, thick... The rabbit ears, which don't even work anymore? Anyway, I do have one, but it is, it's like eight years old, and I haven't tried to buy a new TV in a long time. I don't know any of the things that new TVs can do to make the Super Bowl look better. And it seems like there's a lot of jargon involved in TVs. So that, that's kind of my quest for this, this episode. Okay, so the goal is to basically have the game look as good as possible. And, and sound as good as possible. Right. Okay, so yeah, is, is, is it high definition? Mine is, yeah, but you know, it's the, the oldest version of high definition. That doesn't make too much of a difference. Even old ones still, they're still the, kind of roughly the same... Uh, resolution, the, the look is crisp. So my TV's pro. It's maybe not that old. It's maybe five years old too. Still mm-hmm. looks awesome. So don't sweat that. So is it an HDMI connection? Do you know that? Yes, it is HDMI. Then you're golden. The step between this thing that everyone's trying to sell now, 4K ultra high definition. Yeah. Is I mean I've seen it. It looks awesome. But the jump from high definition to that is not conspicuous. People aren't going to be able to be floored by that. So yeah. you'll be fine with that. Uh, the things you can do is just make sure that the you know the settings like when you accidentally sit on the remote or something like that and it brings up the brightness or contrast or all that. Yeah, and there's thing. always like TV mode, cinema mode, game mode. Yes, user defined. Like I'm not defining user anything. defined. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Those are all uh, more or less you can kind of ignore them. But actually, if you're hosting people or if you're watching a fair amount of movies, it's kind of worth taking. I don't know. It takes like seriously 90 seconds. And what you can kind of what you should do is. It's different for every monitor, but a couple of things like like sharpness, turn that pretty much turn that all the way off. When it's turned all the way up, you'll see people's faces have these kind of artificial borders on them, like there's white outlines to people. Weird. And it kind of ruins the picture. So basically, these are the TV's settings that they try and make so that it will, like it'll, it'll take any content and then just apply an algorithm to it to make it look hopefully a little bit better. Because it's like a computer guessing sort of. Or something. Precisely, yeah. So the other part that you'll see a lot of them have is like a mode, basically. There's cinema mode, and then there's usually sport, dynamic, whatever, something like that. Mm-hmm. Like, have you ever played with photo filters or whatever, and, and you turn up the contrast or you turn up the saturation, yeah. and it looks like really stunning and eye catching? Yeah. It's not too far from that. It's basically, okay. but it's making something that doesn't look quite like what it's supposed to. Play with a couple of those settings and see what looks really good. And then, don't, yeah, d- try to avoid having them at extremes one end or the other. And one thing I've noticed is that sometimes like the like the the basketball game will look really good and fluid, but then when it switches to like a movie preview, it's like the camera's panning and something looks really weird and fake about it. Is that am I imagining that or is that a thing? Completely real. So that's this thing we've been talking about called the soap opera effect. When you see a movie or when you see a trailer, there 
usually around 24 frames per second compared mm -hmm. to 30 or 60, which is what a you know a TV show or a sports game is. So when you're watching something that's on 24 frames per second on a television, what the televisions have been made to do because they're really high refresh rates, they're faster and all that, they will fill in frames that aren't there to try and make everything look smoother. But deliberately, the camera is at a lower frame rate, so that's how you kind of get yeah. this, this, you know, the effect of looking at a movie. That's what happens when you, you're sitting in a theater and you know like how a movie looks compared to yeah. A, yeah, a basketball game or something like that. So it's trying to fill that in. When you're watching a movie, you want to turn off this thing called smoothing or motion smoothing or something like that. That's yeah. producing the effect that you're talking about. So it's just a little bit off. For sports and for you know, reality TV, looks great. It's that, it's that, it looks like that kind of soap opera high frame rate thing. For movies, it can ruin it. really it. ruins it. Totally. Okay. So then my last question is, what about sound? Like, is there, it seems like it's, in my head, it's really expensive to have good sound for a TV. Is that actually still true or is there a better way? I thought it was nonsense. I've always just kind of had a TV and used the speakers that are in it because I didn't want to spend extra money. It makes a huge difference to have speakers that aren't just built into the TV. If you spend maybe 250 bucks on something like it, like Vizio makes one that's really great. A sound bar from that and then mounts it under the TV, they're really easy to hook up now. It can make, it makes all the difference, especially for movies or for, um, you know, like if you're watching the game, you see those guys on the sidelines who have those kind of sound things where you can hear the pads crunching or you can hear yeah. people having dialogue. Yeah. That'll come out much better on a um, on a soundbar. And actually, the cool thing is they're set up now so that they can uh, kind of give the illusion of surround sound. And uh, yeah, for not too much money, that's probably a really quick way to, especially for group viewing. That's a really quick yeah. way to make the viewing experience better. Do I have to pair it with Bluetooth? Negative. Okay. It's corded, old school. Oh come on, you don't remember from our our initial episode? No, I was gonna brag. I could do it now. <laughs> Always underestimating me, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's in the title. It's in the name. In preparation for the Super Bowl this weekend, which I'm pretty excited about, we have Ashley Folk, who is the pitmaster at Hill Country Barbecue Market. Is that correct? Yep. Um, who has brought so many things that smell amazing. <laughs> what uh, what have you brought here? So I thought we'd talk a little bit about nachos and about wings. I mean, the two classic things for the Super Bowl. Um, and we, of course, serve them both at Hill Country. And I wanted to uh, bring them and maybe give some tips so that you could figure out how to serve them to large parties. So we have a ton of things in these little containers <laughs> that are, that we've got, what, uh, onions and cilantro and sour yeah. cream, Guacamole. cheese. Guacamole. These are our house-made pickled jalapenos. Oh, man. A little bit of lime juice. What I honestly, my biggest problem with nachos, I think, is that I end up either the cold stuff gets hot, the hot stuff gets cold, or it's congealed or something, or yeah. then I, my nachos get soggy. Like, I don't understand. Absolutely. So the first, the first thing is with great nachos, you want to have a sturdy chip. Like, you don't want to open your, you know, bag from the grocery store of generic chips that are just going to fall apart and get soggy. It's like those Sochil chips. Yeah. Those like, are so skinny. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You don't want those. You okay. want, you want like the, like, there's a place in Queens we go to called Mixed Tamal, which has like a really thick tortilla chip. You want to find that like super thick, local bodega guy that's got the really heavy chips is okay. the way to go. Or you could make your own with a really nice tortilla. And you just deep fry those? Just deep fry those, yeah, because okay. everyone's got a deep fryer in their house. So, <laughs> you know. So, uh, so yeah, so I and I believe in keeping sort of the cold and hot a little bit separate. Okay. So, like, you know, if you put guacamole on, the guacamole just, like, 
gets all over the place, the sour cream melts, and then you lose it. But there's something wonderful about taking a hot, cheesy chip, dipping it in like cold sour cream mm -hmm. or guacamole. So when I do nachos, I'll do the pile of the cheesy and the chili, and then in front of it have all the cold condiments that you can sort of add on your own. Oh, so, oh, I see. So you do like kind of separate, you just yeah. pull up a cheesy nacho, and then you just top it individually. Yeah, like kind of the rule for me is if you wouldn't bake it on it, you shouldn't put it on it if it's hot. Oh, okay. That's a cool yeah. idea. And also, it seems like people are really weird about sour cream specifically. Like some people have like deep feelings about sour cream and they don't want to like, they don't believe in having it around. So it's a good thing to keep separate too in those times. And that's kind of the setup you have here. Yeah, it's kind of the setup I have here right now. We'll, we'll put one together just to make it easy to eat. But um, I think one of the issues that people have at Super Bowl is they're cooking for more than just two or three people. They're cooking for like a party of 15. Right. And when you make nachos for 15 people, it tends to get cold very quickly, right? Mm -hmm. So the two things I could do is one, when you melt the cheese, you spread out your chips like really a lot, have a lot of space on your pan so that there's cheese melting on every single chip. Okay. Um, the other most important thing to nachos is a Texas classic, which is queso. You you should not have nachos without queso. <laughs> if, if you're going to do that, just don't, don't. Don't make nachos. Don't make nachos okay. if you don't have queso. Make uh, seven-layer bean dip instead. Right. <laughs> make seven-layer <laughs> bean dip instead. Um, so one thing, one thing I like to do with the queso is, um, you know, put it in a fondue pot, like right in front of the nachos, so that as they get as they cool down, you add more hot queso to it, and it melts, helps the cheese melt, and you get like hot nachos oh, every time. Oh, yeah. that's brilliant! And then there's additional cheese because you can never have too much cheese. You can never have too much cheese. Queso in Texas is like a food group. It's in, <laughs> in the blood of Texans. It's like an amazing thing, and everyone's got that dumb fondue pot that they got like ten years ago from. Aunt Betty, and, mm -hmm. like, and I've never used because you don't. Know, what are these skewers even for? I don't understand. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, put a little ladle in it and do it. So, um, so yeah. Let's oh, cool. Uh, yeah, let's put one together. So what I what I like to do is put a little bit of queso on it. Now you want to move enough. That's queso. a little bit of queso. <laughs> what? I'm That's I, a lot of queso. I'm this is, this is, so excited. The, you know, decadence is is really what it's about <laughs> with nachos. I mean, not, nachos are actually very young. They were only created in like the 1940s. They're like a young. Wow. A young invention. In, well, in the U.S. or where? Uh, apparently in northern Mexico. Um, I like to put the pickled jalapenos. And you know what? I'll even do pickled jalapenos as I'm baking the chips. Okay. Because I think it's nice to get a little char on those jalapenos. Mm -hmm. And like a little bit of that char on your chips is, is amazing. So you're pro-pickled jalapenos. I am as well. And I we had this debate the other day. Well, I, I, I think I think if you're going to do uh, a fresh jalapeno on a nacho, that's fine. But you want to squeeze a little lime over your nacho. Because the reason the pickled jalapeno on nacho is so awesome, that acidity helps cut through all the richness of the queso mm -hmm. and of the cheese. So that's the point of the pickle up. But if you don't like a pickled jalapeno because they are a little spicier they have a little more like punch to them yeah um i would just squeeze lime over your nachos like right before you eat them cool. lime. he In has fact, limes here i as have well some limes lime, so yeah. we can do some limes um so i'm just going to put this whole thing together because because y'all are sitting over there so um i like a raw onion on it okay and again if and you, that's a red onion yeah raw red onion it's nice and sweet i mean the raw onion is very mexican and what i do with cilantro is i like to get I think nachos should be like a little journey, not the destination, uh -huh. you know? You should be eating through them and get these little like pops of other new flavors. So that's why I like to use whole leaf cilantro. So you put some cilantro and you're gonna get one chip that's just like a cilantro pop, but then you get a chip that doesn't have any on it and you get this like constant journey of like different little surprises. And then that helps if you have people that don't like cilantro because they can search for the the ones with no cilantro on Well, them. I wouldn't invite anyone with that doesn't like cilantro. <laughs> so for our purposes here, I'm gonna just put the guacamole right on top so y'all can Oh nice. my god, these look so good. Yeah, the guacam guacamole is also key too. So I also believe in like adding flavors to a lot of the elements of it. You know, if you're gonna do a tomato, why put a tomato on in the middle of the winter, which we're in the middle of winter 
when you can marinate it in a little bit of onions, a little bit, oops. A little bit of, <laughs> you just poured that over some wings. I just got Which I'm sure is still good. But, you know, you can add a little acidity to it and, you know, give, the, give it a little life. I mean, yeah. I think somebody once said that, that cooking great food is often about fixing up bad produce. You know, it's like we just uh-huh. want to, if it's not a great piece of produce, add something to it to make it a little better. Here, why don't you just eat some of this? Oh, my gosh. So this looks amazing. Kevin, for you. Oh. <laughs> I thought this day would never come. <laughs> I know, I've been just, sitting here just oh my God. casually chatting about it. <laughs> and we're like just staring at these nachos. <laughs> oh know, my God. Just drool all over the mics. <laughs> hey, so Roy Berenson showed up. You're going to tell us about your favorite tool. Yeah, I've got lots of them, Jackie. I, you have a lot in your office. Yeah, no, that's true, too. I mean, I've got, yeah, as, as you know, everything in there from circular saws to, you know, you name it. Uh, but, yeah, I, I have um, a lot of favorite tools. Some of them are, are kind of sentimental favorites. So is this a sentimental favorite today? Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. It's one that I made. You wow. Know, and, and that was a fairly common thing for especially woodworkers to make their own tools. Hand well, I guess, right, if you're making, if you are a carpenter and you make wood, yeah. then you mm. might as well make your own tools. That's Yeah, yeah. But today I'm going to talk about a marking knife. Oh, what's a marking knife? In woodworking with hand tools, you need a very sharp knife to scribe a line in wood. Unlike a pencil mark, say, uh, the line can't be easily smudged or easily erased, uh-huh. so you have to get it right. But for in, in, in traditional uh, hand tool woodworking, you use marking tools, and among them knives, uh, a marking knife. And I made this one uh, years ago when I was an apprentice cabinet maker, and not a very good apprentice at that. But at least I, I was a good enough apprentice to complete this little project in which we took a beat-up, reciprocating saw blade. That's the one that goes back and forth, forward yeah. and back, kind of. Yeah. yeah. And so, you, we, you know, we took these two pieces of maple, sawed it in half, you know, very carefully cut a shallow depression in both halves so that when we put them together with epoxy, we sandwiched that piece of a reciprocating saw blade in there, and then you grind an edge on it. And so you don't want it to be serrated. No, that's, no. Okay, yeah. that's what so I thought. Yeah, you grind all of that off, and then you, you're just using this very high-quality piece of steel. Oh, and how long have you had this? Oh, I don't know, 30, 30 years, something? That's a long time. Yeah, well, I mean, um, in, in the world of hand tools, that's, that's long, but not terribly long. It's not unusual for a good hand tool to last 30, 50, 100, 150 years. Wow. Oh, yeah. Do you have to do anything to make sure they last that long? Probably. Yeah, you take care of them, keep them dry, keep them clean, uh, keep them sharp. I mean, I have a, I have a handsaw, 1783. Wow. Still Shouldn't works. have any museums approached you about how, taking no, that from you? <laughs> no, they're, they're, they're actually fairly common, believe wow. it or not. Yeah, uh, handsaws from the late 17 through the uh, 1800s. And you... Do they look any different than a modern handsaw? Yeah, they're larger, for one thing. They're huh. more robustly built. Um, that was the, the primary, uh, you know, before there were power tools. You know, people right, sawed wood by hand. And so they were quite large. Um, carpenters that used them were broad-shouldered, big-handed types. You know, if you look at old... I need to move back to the 1700s. I won't address that. <laughs> um, <laughs> 
This is maybe the tastiest testing table we've ever done, which is a tongue twister. Um, we have, I think Matt Goulet, our senior associate editor, is uh, mid-bite with a uh, nacho right now that's left over from our Hill Country Pitmaster. And uh, we also have Alex George, our tech editor, who is uh, bogarting the wings. Kevin, I'm sorry. Pickled is so much better than fresh jalapeno. Yeah, I agree. Agree. Uh, we'll, have, we'll discuss off air. I actually also am pro. Yeah, we're all pro pickle. You wait so. till I have no mic. Yeah, he has no mic. <laughs> he has no mic and can't counter. Um, so we have three things we're going to talk about today. Um, let's talk about mine first because I think it goes well with nachos. Uh, Sam Adams in late January just came out with their own nitro can system. Guinness has been using something similar. They got a widget in it that makes the pour really smooth, and it's using nitrogen gas basically instead of carbon dioxide, which creates a different sort of bubble and a foamier head. And usually that's used for stouts, but more and more indie beer companies have been installing nitro taps for other sorts of beers lately. And so this is the one of the first mainstream breweries other than Guinness to put it into a can. So this is going to be all over the place this spring and summer. The way the widget works is you pour it directly into the center of the glass, which is not probably how you're used to pouring a beer. What happens is you, when you open the can, it releases the pressure from everything in the can, but inside the widget, which is a little ball that has a hole pr in it, the pressure remains the same. So all of the uh, pressurized beer that's inside the ball shoots out into the liquid in the can, and that's what creates the cool bubbles. So uh, what do you guys want to try? I want that stout. Good. Um. Oh, you can hear it. Okay, Blast just pour off. directly. Uh, this feels wrong to be pouring just straight into the center I like know. this. Dad told me you tilt the glass, all, right. all that nonsense, but it's actually oh. working. See, look at the look at that fizz. Oh, you see the pouring, yeah, it's pouring you see like the little a Guinness. Fluff, it's pouring like Guinness. See all this little fluff? That how tiny the bubbles are. It makes it it makes it smoother. It also is supposed to tone down bitterness. So I'm in, I'm glad I'm t tasting this IPA because usually with beers they don't use it with hoppy beers. They use it with maltier beers because it tends to like it tends to really um, cut down the hops. Oh, that is a really foamy head for an IPA, and it is smooth. Yeah, like a rich foamy head on, on like, like a canned like beer. It. You ever seen that on it? Like, look at that. It looks like it came out of a like a good, well plunged keg. Oh, I like this a lot. <laughs> yeah, I'm pro. I am pro nitro IPA. Look at that. Um, should I hear the widget inside the can? No. I don't hear it. What happens? It says to it has a widget. So oh, I have a pocket it's, knife. Maybe it's. Oh, yeah, you want to open this can? Yeah. It's Let's embedded, I think, like it. in ah! the bottom of it. Sorry. Well, then we had tools in here. Oh. Okay, what so there's a little like? protrusion on the bottom of it. Oh, that's cool. Oh, it looks like an upside-down K-cup from one of those, like, coffee things that you stick yeah. in. Yeah. So it's like, wow, that's cool. So there's a tiny little thing protruding from the bottom so of the can that, I guess, holds the pressure or holds the nitrogen or... Well, basically, you put, you, put the nitrogen and, you put the nitrogen and the beer in together. And then uh, over time, all of it kind of seeps into the little... Because there's a hole in it. So like, it seeps into the, into the you know, ball or the widget. Or this one is like stuck to the bottom, I guess. Yeah. But it seeps in there. Nipple. So it's like the, everything's under the same amount of pressure. But because there's such a tiny hole, then when you open the can... The can's pressure is released, but the widget's pressure is not released. So the widget still is under high pressure, and that shoots out into the can. Got it. So that's, give, that's that's what gives it that nice, like, straight-off tap sort of fizziness, I yeah, guess. Yeah, mine's fantastic. It's, it's good. Like, lovely. Lovely. I really like it. <laughs> Let's talk about what you guys have been testing. Uh, Matt Goulet, you have something over there that looks fun. Uh what is it's like a battery operated hand warmer? Yeah, what I have here is the dry dry warm mid charge that goes for forty bucks. You can find it places like REI. 
Um, and it is like a, you know, lithium ion battery pack that just pretty much heats up. It can double as a phone charger. You get like two full charges uh, to your phone with it. But Oh, that's handy. Yeah. So, you, you know, while you're on the mountain, say you're skiing, you plug this guy in. And you can charge your phone or you can heat up your hands. Uh, you got two settings. You get 110 degrees or 120 degrees. At 120 degrees, you get about three hours of heat from this bad boy. Uh, 110, you get about five, and it's uh, it's about the price of what you would pay for like a 40 pack of those little plastic hand warmers. Right, and probably less and less wasteful. But one question I have: two things that tend to light on fire all the time are heating devices and lithium batteries. So is that going to light on fire? It's, I don't think so, but uh, like it just doesn't feel right. <laughs> <laughs> Can I wait? Is it, war- is it warm right it's now? It's warming up for you now. Oh, that feels warm, though. I, I really he- like these on ski hills. I basically can't ski without hand warmers because <laughs> yeah. I'm a little wuss. It's a little cumbersome, like if you're trying to like stuff it up into your gloves, like you'd say. Right. You know? Oh, right. Yeah, that's the thing. It's like a little stick. stick. Yeah. Yeah. Um, or like, you know. Because that's what? That's about the size of like a pack of cigarettes. Yeah. Like, sk- like a, a little, little skinnier, skinnier, but about like your, that size. Like your mom's Virginia Slims. Right. So. Yeah. Or, you know, like uh, the way I always use like those little hand warmer packages, actually is like stuff them in the front of my boots. And like this, like oh, obviously would not fit in the front of your boot. Yeah, like unless you have really big snow boots. Right. If you had one of those muffs, you know, like yeah. back in the day when women used to like go to the theater and they'd have like a hand muff and they'd yeah. stick their hands on either side of it, that would have been great for that. Yeah. Um, so if we could just transport that back to whatever that was, 1850, I think. Yeah. You'd be king. Um, all right. And then Alex George, you don't have anything. What uh, What are you testing? You're always testing something. Uh, this one was up until two days ago in the garage. It's the 2016 McLaren 570S. It's a, uh, let's see, the retail, $184,900. Oh, my bucks. God, that's the price of a house. Now, <laughs> wait for the really crazy part. It's actually cheap for this kind of a car. So the, bit, the idea is that it's the, I don't know. Your entry-level McLaren? <laughs> entry-level McLaren. Precisely. So I, went, we, I drove this around with our auto editor, Ezra Dyer, and the idea behind it is it gets rid of a couple of the really super high-sophisticated things that the other 200,000-plus cars have. Just a rocket that stays planted to the ground. And really importantly, it has these... It has the, it's not the Lamborghini scissor doors. It's not a going door. They're very specifically called dihedral doors, which means you lift them up and they go kind of forward. They, they're very cool doors. They're like the kind of doors that like somebody would be like, that's clearly a car that I can't afford, right? It, it's very conspicuous. The one they gave us was lime green too. So you're just like. <laughs> Are they so, automatic or manual? No, man, seven speed manual, okay. uh, dual clutch. Blah, blah, blah. Basically that means you upshift by hitting the paddles that you pull oh, these little trigger cool. paddles like an F1 car. Yeah. The paddles are made out of carbon fiber. You feel like, like you're by, like in an F-35 airplane or something like that. You're just going up and down. And it's all perfectly sequential like that. You can't help. You make the engine sound. <laughs> Alex, Alex George is not not excited about this car. Uh, so I had a seven-year-old boy again. Completely. I had a poster of the, I had a McLaren F1 LM poster on my wall in my bedroom when I was seven years old. And how this long is like, has McLaren been around? I, I, for some reason, I thought they were new. The company's been around since so the, this guy, Bruce McLaren, he died in 70, I forget when, in the 70s, test driving. They've been making race Wait, he cars he died forever. while test driving? Yes. Oh, man. So the founder of the company, the guy who's for, for which it's named, so our auto editor, Ezra, went over to the factory in England to kind of understand this. They've been making race cars forever, but they just started making car, like, I know this sounds insane to people like us, but the, like, $300,000 and under market for cars. They're starting to make cars for that, basically. They used to make, you know, million-dollar cars that, you know, they only ran a very limited run of them. Now they're making actual consumer stuff. What's the most expensive McLaren? 
Uh, it's it varies. They're all taken for, so the price is over. But remember that P that the one called the P one? It's like the mm-hmm. that one was outside of our office mm-hmm. a while ago. Mm-hmm. That one is, it's one point two, I think. If you bought, if you had the chance to buy one now, if you like buy it at an auction, it's beyond that. One point two million, and Correct. they're all taken. Yes. Wow. Um, so they must be. Pre- so I mean. Normally, at the end of the segment, I ask, uh, would you buy your thing? But since that is presumably not an option for you, um, is it? are these worth it? Is it worth it if you could afford this? So the, th- the thing that came up when I was driving with Ezra is when they have these cars, imagine you just had a financial, you know, something just great just happened. Inheritance, just the, soldier company, whatever, yep. and you're just like, I want to treat myself. You would get, you basically have to ask yourself, who do I want to be aligned with? Do I want the... Lamborghini, which basically says, like, I want to show up and be very conspicuous. Do I want the Ferrari, which is kind of more, a little bit more understated, classic. And then there's this thing, which not many people know, but if you're a car guy, you see somebody driving, they're like, okay, that guy really cares about how a car functions. Uh And he wants something unusual. So Lamborghini is nouveau riche, and then this is, like, quite... This is like bourgeois. No. Yeah, it's, it's, it's all in terms of how conspicuous you want to be. This thing was lime green. You didn't. I didn't feel like I was being obnoxious the way you do with a Lamborghini that's a bigger engine, is louder, and uh, just kind of has that brashness that you don't get from this thing from England. How's it driving the city? Surprise! Uh, it sucks. All these cars hate being driven really slow. They're just kind of like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> this they're, whole podcast is going to be Alex making engine noises. They're just, it's like, I don't know, like a dog on a, like tugging on a leash kind of a thing. Yeah. All right. Well then, uh, let's, uh, to, to move on to some cheaper things, uh, what, what do you guys think about the beer? Would you buy the beer? Yes. Uh, this stuff is great. Sam Adams is always the one, you can usually find it at any bar and it's always the one that I get if I see it. Yeah. Sam just, Adams is Sam always Adams a solid. Sam Adams Lager is great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Solid choice. Always a solid choice. Um, and then hand warmer wise, uh, I was I was really bullish on it when I first saw it, but now that now that I've thought about the fact that it wouldn't fit into my ski gloves, which is where I need it, yeah, I don't know. It's kind of it's kind of what's the for us. what's the brand? Uh, it's called Dry Guy. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. If, if you so if you got the forty bucks, why so not? So we're we're pro buying a McLaren, pro <laughs> buying uh, the nitro beers from San Adams Adams, and maybe. Not so much on the dry guy. We're lukewarm, like the warm setting, low setting on the dry guy (laughs) hand heater. So that's our show. The Most Useful Podcast Ever is produced by Jack Dillon. We'd like to thank Sarah Bentley and Andy Bowers from Panoply and Popular Mechanics Editor-in-Chief Ryan D'Agostino. Check out our show on iTunes. And while you're there, leave us a comment. We've only got like three. We'd love to know what you think. And if you want to read more about pimping out your TV for the big game, check out our website, popularmechanics.com. While you're there, you can subscribe to the print and digital edition of Popular Mechanics magazine for just $13.99 a year. I'm Jacqueline Detweiler. Thanks for listening, and may the best team win. <laughs>